Hey everyone, this week we've got a bonus episode from a friend of mine who runs a fascinating podcast called Forgotten Wars. Michael Buster is the host of the show. He's from Phoenix, Arizona, USA, and has a master's degree in European history, so he knows his stuff. His episode today takes a look at the role of Colonel Robert Baden-Powell in the 1899 Siege of Mafeking, which is part of the Boer Wars. The episode deals with some racially charged concepts and gives a great overview into the enigma that was Baden-Powell, cross-dressing to amuse the troops while simultaneously starving black citizens. His other episodes are a comprehensive deep dive into the Boer Wars, a conflict that I was woefully ignorant about, but am now much less so, thanks to Forgotten Wars. And just to reiterate, this is a bonus episode. Our usual fortnightly release schedule will still be met. Take it away, Michael. Under the British flag, you will have everything you desire. But that flag will continue to fly over the land. Over the land, maybe. Over the people, never. You will see me in the field, fighting for our independence, long after you and your party who make war with your mouths have fled the country. I don't think the Boers will have a chance. Disarm your blacks, act the part of a white man in a white man's war. Civilized war is awful. John Plano of Carpini, a Franciscan writing about the feared Mongol warriors and their children in the 13th century, wrote the following, quote, Their children begin as soon as they are two or three years old to ride and manage horses and to gallop on them, and they are given bows to suit their stature and are taught to shoot, end quote. Some even reported that Mongol shaman, known as Yadasi, used rainstones believed to have the magical potential to control the weather. Mongol Yadasi, magicians, if you will, were rumored to have successfully summoned unexpected rainstorms or even hail and snow to fall upon their ill-fated enemies in the summer. At the turn of the 20th century, many optimistic British officials predicted victory in weeks over the Boers of South Africa. The British were wrong. General after colonel after officer met their reputation's demise in defeat after disaster after disgrace in the Second Boer War. In a gold and diamond-riddled South Africa that British leadership had desperately longed to dominate for decades, the British delivered no knockout blow in 1899. But then a hero emerged. Or at least someone that many in the United Kingdom have remembered as a hero. A few would describe British Colonel Robert Stevenson Smith Baden-Powell as a magician. This magician, Colonel Baden-Powell, would achieve celebrity in a surprising way, by enduring a siege. In his authoritative book, The Boer War, historian Thomas Pakenham enraptures you with Baden-Powell's story. Pakenham refers to Baden-Powell as BP for short. It wasn't as if Baden-Powell was the only British officer defending a town under siege. The Boers were also besieging the town of Kimberley and the town of Ladysmith. 
Neither of Baden Powell's counterparts survived with both their prestige and their command intact. So, what made Baden Powell special? BP, for years, had hardened his habit of whistling whenever he was extremely frustrated. BP wasn't one of those officers who inspire awe primarily from playing the press. The bald colonel endeared himself to others with his sense of humor. He drew laughter by bursting into ridiculous songs around his men. He would burst into song, donning drag in Moffat Kang's theater while a siege was on. One lady of the garrison wrote that on a Sunday night in Moffat Kang, while BP had the audience laughing at his antics, quote, Suddenly, there was an alarm of a night attack. In an instant, the man who had been masquerading as a buffoon was again the commanding officer, stern and silent. End quote. BP impressed the men who served under him with the stiff upper lip expected of British officers. And boy, did he have many an occasion to keep that stiff upper lip. Mafakang, or as the African tribes called it, the Place of Stones, was a small railroad town of tin roofs mounted on mud walls situated close to where the Cape Colony, Betuwanaland Protectorate, and the Transvaal's borders met. With the Boer resistance rising primarily from the Transvaal and Orange Free State Republics of South Africa, Mafakang's proximity to the Transvaal placed it in a precarious position. Mafakang's history also made it a welcome target for Boer aggression. Just four years before, Dr. Leander Stah Jameson and several hundred men had launched an invasion of Mafakang. Jameson and company hoped they would inspire an insurrection of the Transvaal's immigrants, immigrants that far outnumbered the Transvaal's Boer settlers. As tensions between the Boers and British had heightened in the middle fortnights of 1899, the British political and military leadership had a plan for BP. BP was to lead a force of 1,000 soldiers to the Transvaal's border to scare President Creer into climbing down, to scare the Transvaal president into giving the political concessions the British had been demanding for months. The situation on the ground changed rapidly. Then, the British War Office sent BP secret instructions, instructions telling him to punch into the Transvaal with his 1,000 men the moment after war broke out. BP didn't miss the irony in these orders. The orders would have had a small force, not much larger than Dr. Jameson's, launch an attack on the Transvaal. Then, BP's plan and purpose was flipped in September. Alfred Milner, the British High Commissioner for South Africa, decided that Mafeking should be bait, not a launching ground. BP's force would try to lure the Boers into devoting thousands of troops to attacking this most vulnerable town of the Cape Colony. The Boers took the bait. During the Second Boer War's first month, BP managed to draw Boer General Pete Cronier's force of 7,700 men to besiege Mafeking with BP's 1,000 troops. Drawing off 20% of war forces during this first month of the war was crucial 
and could well have saved South Africa for the British. When all the British had were scarcely over 10,000 troops in all of South Africa, compared to nearly 40,000 Boers in the field. BP gained recognition as a member of Sir Garnet Woolsey's ring of officers who fought various African campaigns. BP served as Chief of Staff in Rhodesia in 1896 and helped put down a Matabele uprising there. When the colonial office accused BP of murdering Chief Uwini, a leader of that uprising, BP simply said that the chief deserved it. BP won respect for this murder among white Rhodesians. As a matter of fact, he was chosen commander of the Mafeking garrison because of this murder. BP also won popularity as an author. In his account of the second Matabele rebellion, he spoke of his ability to outbore the Boers. He took great pride in his scouting and his nigger hunts. Yes, sadly you heard that right. BP faced a much larger adversary at Mafeking, but Cronier was also a much lesser leader. As BP continued to hold off Cronier, British forces eventually reached 12,000 strong with 15 artillery guns to hold a 12 to 15 mile perimeter around Lady Smith. 2,600 British troops and 14 artillery pieces stood ready to defend the besieged town of Kimberley's 10-mile perimeter. To hold Mafeking, BP had 600 regular troops, with 300 white Mafeking residents who took up arms. They had a few outdated artillery pieces far outmatched by opposing Boer field guns. Mafeking's paper tiger force defied all odds against a Cronier-led force that outnumbered BP's garrison by more than six to one. More than six to one. How did this paper tiger force hold on? BP sent small raiding parties seven times to make kicks, as he called them, at the Cronier-led army. From October to November 1899, these kicks cost BP over 160 of his small garrison. But these costly kicks scared Cronier into believing that BP's force was far stronger than it actually was. Dummy forts were constructed, and armored trains sent off from Mafeking to draw war fire. Besieging Mafeking begot explosive ingenuity. Take the wolf that never sleeps, for example. This gun was first brought into the world as a four-inch steel pipe. Pakenham describes the wolf's evolution. Quote, Add a threshing machine as a chassis. Cast a breach in the railway foundry. With a roar of smoke and flame, the wolf could throw an 18-pound shell 4,000 yards across the felt. End quote. That's over 3,600 meters that a former four-inch steel pipe was firing. Then there was the Lord Nelson, Major Godley, of the Betuana Land Protectorate's contingent at Mafeking found an antique ship's cannon dated from 1770. The local Baralong tribe purchased this cannon years before to help protect against war raiders. By an incredible coincidence, this cannon already had the initials BP and Co. engraved on the barrel. 
Major Godley wrote about one of Lord Nelson's 10-pound cannonballs bumping down the road exactly like a cricket ball, and one old boar trying to field it with disastrous results to himself. Then there was Sergeant Page's predilection for throwing potted meat tins filled with dynamite. These explosive meat tins hit targets from over a hundred yards away. Mafeking mitigated its coal shortage by blending one part cow dung and one part coal dust to mix a fuel good enough to power their trains. BP brought further laughs by having Mafeking stamps printed with his head on them instead of the Queen's. On October 29, 1899, General Cronier wrote the following to BP. Quote, it is understood that you have armed bastards, fingos, and baralongs against us. In this you have committed an enormous act of wickedness. Reconsider the matter, even if it costs you the loss of Mafeking. Disarm your blacks, and thereby act the part of a white man in a white man's war. End quote. You see, BP had broken the gentleman's agreement between British and Boer forces. The agreement held that neither side would arm African blacks against each other. This was supposed to be a white man's war. Both sides did use blacks as drivers, trench diggers, mules, and unarmed scouts. But BP went further. There was a black Mafeking, the section referred to as Stott. Several thousand Baralong lived there. Hundreds more Fingos fled here, when wars burned down their villages. Shangon miners who were kicked out of the gold mines of the Rant and robbed of their savings by Boer officials fled to Stadt. So many natives went to work for BP so they could eat. BP sacked the Baralong chief, executed some Africans caught stealing food, and flogged 115 others for the same offense. The Africans dug trenches, served as spies, herded cattle, and performed various dangerous scouting missions. But BP also armed 300 Africans to help guard Mafeking's perimeter, thus increasing his force by almost a third, clearly violating the gentleman's agreement. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When General Redford's Buller arrived in South Africa with tens of thousands of British reinforcements... General Cronier left 1,500 soldiers to continue besieging Mafeking, while Cronier took 6,200 soldiers with him to fight British elsewhere. Cronier's failure to take Mafeking those first two months of hostilities cost the Boers dearly. But the siege of Mafeking was far from over. Masking his iron will to win with his good humor, BP refused to surrender. For BP, the siege wasn't over until he could say, I win. For four more months, he willed his garrison to hold on. He knew that maintaining high morale in Mafeking was crucial. BP tightly controlled the media in Mafeking, 
He forbade them when they sought to escape the garrison, fearing that they would spread gossip when they reached Cape Town. When a half-mad artillery officer murdered the Daily Chronicle's journalist, Ernest Parslow, BP sentenced the officer to death, then released him later because of his bravery during the siege. Food began to run short in Mafeking in January 1900. BP originally calculated their garrison had enough food to last through February, while Stott's Africans had enough to last them until December. So what magic did BP rot to make sure the whites weren't starved by April? The secret to BP's magic was hidden in his confidential staff diary from the siege for 78 years. For 78 years, how BP defied all odds and helped Mafeking hold on twice as long as Kimberly or Ladysmith was not fully known. Thomas Pakenham shares the following from BP's confidential diary. Quote, November 14th. The census shows our numbers to be as follows. Whites, men, 1,074. Women, 229. Children, 405. Natives, 7,500 all told. Supplies, meat, plentiful live and tinned, 180,000 pounds. Meat and flour, 188,100 pounds. Coffer, corn, and mealies. 109,100 pounds. White rations required daily, 1,340. Native, 7,000. Thus, we have 134 days for whites, 15 days for natives. BP had all flour and meal rationed, whether originally owned by merchants, Africans, or the army. BP refused to let Africans buy bread, or use other white rations. For the Africans, BP used 362,000 pounds of grain and oat rations meant for horses. These 362,000 pounds didn't show up in his initial supply tally. Then in January, BP further reduced the horse rations, buying an extra month of survival for Mafeking's people. All residents were required to buy food, even if originally the food had been theirs. However, whites were allowed to buy food on credit, while blacks were not. BP suspected blacks of large-scale hoarding of grain. It turned out, the opposite was true. The main army supplier had intentionally understated his supplies. The Army Service Corps Sergeant Major, supposed to be managing rations, was running a black market of his own. Then, in early February, BP discovered that an innovative baker had found a way to grind horses' oats to make flour. So BP then repurposed the extra horse rations that had been repurposed as food for the Africans again, this time for bread-making for whites. How were the Africans to survive? On April 7th of 1900, Nearly 700 weeping Baralong women burst back into Mafeking. Ten Baralong women had escaped through war lines to a far-off British outpost. The rest didn't make it. 
Wars viciously stripped some of the women naked and flogged them before throwing them back into Mafeking. Six nights later, 200 women did escape through Boer lines undetected. 13 more Baralong women tried to escape through Boer lines on April 15th, but the result was fatal. Nine were shot dead. Four returned alive. Two of them wounded. Why this rash of escape attempts? Earlier on February 8th, VP decided on a new policy for the non-essential Africans. Leave or starve. He needed hundreds of Africans still for support functions around Mafa King. But he didn't need the refugees. He didn't need the Shangon miners who had just finished digging defensive works. BP closed the grain store and banned employment to the 2,000 Africans he no longer wanted. Those Africans who stayed got to enjoy yet another BP economy. He discovered that oat husks left over from grinding oatmeal, could make a porridge called sowin. So more oatmeal flour was diverted to the whites, while the Africans enjoyed more sowin and horse meat stew. Emerson Neely of the Paul Mall Gazette wrote this about the 5,000 Africans lucky enough to stay in Stott. Quote, I saw them fall down on the felt and lie where they had fallen too weak to go on their way. The sufferers were mostly little boys, mere infants ranging from four or five upwards. Hunger had them in its grip, and many of them were black specters and living skeletons, their ribs literally breaking their shriveled skin. Probably hundreds died from starvation or the diseases that had always accompanied famine. Words could not portray the scene of misery. Five or six hundred human frameworks of both sexes and all ages in rags, standing in lines, holding an old blackened can, awaiting turn to crawl painfully up to the soup kitchen where the food was distributed. End quote. Pakenham wrote, quote, the other 2,000 Africans, outcasts, hunted for bones on the rubbish heaps and dug up the corpses of dogs buried outside the town. BP also recorded in his diary that 94 dogs were killed the last month of the siege with natives being allowed to eat the dogs. This is what staying around Mafeking meant if you were African. BP received a letter on March 31st, which made him more desperate. Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Plumer's 700-man Rhodesian regiment had failed to break through to Mafa King. Plumer's men had been driven back and dealt heavy losses. BP stepped up his efforts to drive natives out of Mafa King. He wanted 2,000 more Baralongs to try to reach Plumer. On April 20th, Native message runners from Bloemfontein informed BP that his brother, Major Baden-Baden-Powell, yes, you heard that right, Major Baden-Baden-Powell was organizing a relief effort that might not arrive until the end of May. But BP's leave-or-die policy did work. 
Though he did protest the war treatment of natives that he ejected from Mafeking, BP didn't stop coercing natives to leave. Before the siege was over, over 1,200 natives had made it to Plumer. BP even wrote with hope that he could increase the rations for whites with so many natives gone. Sarel Elof, commandant of the Johannesburg Commando that had been besieging Mafeking, knew his war forces were running out of time on May 12th. British forces were gradually retaking the Cape Colony and would reach Mafeking in less than a week. Just two weeks earlier, BP had declined when Elof asked if his wars could join the Mafeking garrison in its weekly games of cricket held on Sundays. BP found the humor in this, since General Cronier had earlier criticized the Brits for playing these games on the Sabbath. Paul Creer, president of the Transvaal, was Sarol Elof's grandfather. Elof was eager to make a name for himself before time ran out. So he hatched a plan. At moonset, about half of his forces would fake an attack against Mafeking's eastern trenches and nearby forts into the teeth of the Lord Nelson and the Wolf and other British artillery. On the other hand, Elof would personally command a 700-man contingent, which included French and German volunteers, that would attack Stott, Black Mafeking. Elof's force would be guided by natives and a deserting British trooper named Hay. Stott was BP's blind spot. Elof posted a notice in camp the night before the attack, declaring, We leave for Mafeking tonight. We will breakfast at Dixon's Hotel tomorrow morning. Only 240 volunteers stepped up, far less than the 700 Elof anticipated. The plan was executed perfectly at first. Snayman led the Fane attack force like clockwork as soon as the moon set. Elof's contingent slipped unnoticed between two British forts and into Stott. Elof's men set fire to Baralong huts to strike fear into the natives and signal to Snayman's contingent. This signaled to BP that something was very wrong. Church bells rang the general alarm. Elof's men still captured 29 officers, including BP's second in command, firing only one shot a lethal one, into a British soldier-servant who refused to put his hands up. Elof swaggered to a nearby phone in the captured officer's fort and informed BP that his second-in-command and the fort were captured. An errant bullet struck the veranda below BP's head at 4 a.m., so he was already wide awake directing the garrison's defense when Elof's call arrived. White Mafeking looked like it was in chaos, with defenders and reporters running to their posts in their underwear, one man handing out shotguns from his store, and Winston Churchill's aunt, Lady Sarah Wilson, slipping through the dining room window to grab a cup of coffee. BP resisted the impulse to personally lead any one defense effort. He stayed close to his phone, barking out orders and intel to his lieutenants. BP's lieutenants vindicated his strategy. Baralongs cut off Elof's line of retreat. One group of Elof's men were overcome by two British squadrons. When the Boer contingent raised the white flag, Baralongs rushed in to wreak revenge on the Boers. 
Captain Marsh's B Squadron saved some of the surrendered Boers from reaping what they'd sown. The other Boer contingents were steadily hemmed in. Even before Elof learned how much the battle had turned against he and the Boers, Elof treated his captors civilly. Elof popped in and out of the captured officer's fort, sometimes making cordial, if not friendly, conversation with his captors. As Elof's fortune continued to grow worse, he kept a stiff upper lip. When Elof fully grasped that his situation was hopeless, he arranged a ceasefire. Ironically, Elof still got to eat breakfast at Dixon's hotel with BP playing host. The failed attack on Mafeking cost the Boers 60 casualties and over 100 taken prisoner. BP's garrison suffered only 20 casualties. Four days later, British lookouts and civilians watched their war besiegers leave trails of dust behind them. Hours later, on May 17th, Colonel Brian Mahan and Lieutenant Colonel Plumer's relief columns marched into Mafeking. It took a while for Mafeking's residents to truly believe they were relieved. Hysterical applause resounded across the British Empire when Mafeking's relief was announced. Colonel Baden-Powell had given the British public a huge shot of self-confidence. BP had dealt a brutal blow to the Boer psyche. BP would later found the original Boy Scouts in Britain. But BP's heroics cost the lives of 2,000 Africans who were shot or left on his orders to starve. So, who were these Boers that the British clashed with? Why did the Boers try to invade the Cape Colony and Natal, the two British colonies in South Africa? We'll get to that. Just make sure you pay attention to the dates in each episode so that you aren't lost in time. Now for a couple disclaimers. I'm an American. Therefore, even with my best efforts and with my British friend Marnie O'Hare and South African friend John Leach, generously coaching me on pronunciations, I'm sure I will still butcher some names, especially where any rolling of R's is involved. Just know that it's my fault and I'm doing the best I can, and that you're welcome to email me at ForgottenWarsPodcast at gmail.com if you have any pronunciation corrections. And you know what? Email me any constructive suggestions for how I can improve the show. Anyone who knows me knows that I appreciate constructive feedback over flattery any day. Email me about any historical inaccuracies that you think came out of my mouth. I do research each episode quite a bit, but I doubt I will get through dozens of episodes without making even one mistake. If you do email me about anything you think is inaccurate, please provide me a specific citation, ideally with page numbers not just read this book. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. You're one of my favorite types of listeners. I hope you'll tune in again. A huge thank you to the show's Patreon supporters, Claudia, Tom, Malcolm, and Roll. A lot of people don't realize this, but this is a one-man show, so there's a big chunk of time that goes into research, writing, editing, and all that. I love sharing these stories, and it means a lot knowing you guys are enjoying them. Your contributions help me keep the lights on, sound libraries, web hosting, books, and all that. If you're not a patron already, we've got some really cool rewards like having the option to read out some of the quotes we use in our episodes. 
If you want to go have a look, tap the link in our bio.